Hello, and welcome to HashMap on Tap with Randy Pitcher and Trey Dempsey. Today, we're going to talk about IoT hardware. Trey, welcome to the show. What are you drinking today? I am drinking an espresso. It is a uh, Lavazza Super Crema espresso bean, and it's really delicious. Really? Okay, so do you do you put any sugar or cream or anything in that, or is it just straight? It's usually just straight, maybe a little bit of sugar, and then I like to pair it with uh, uh, Topo Chico, some kind of mineral water. Uh, it mixes well with the, um, you take a sip of the espresso, and then you take a sip of the mineral water, and it kind of kind of goes well together. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, yeah supposedly, um, you know, the espresso has these micro bubbles. That's all the foam on top. It's not actually like, foam. it's little tiny bubbles, and the bubbles of the mineral water somehow play nice with the espresso. It's It's kind of neat. I'm going to have to try that. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm an Americano guy because I can't take straight. I like black coffee, but I can't take straight espresso. And mm -hmm. I also really like sparkling water. We just got a um, soda stream that will generate it. In it, a previous house, I had a our refrigerator water actually would take a canister of CO2 and it would dispense. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was awesome in Houston. I miss that fridge. Um, but I've never tried mixing, like not literally mixing, but trying both yeah. at the same time. I'm gonna have to try that. And, um, the blend I have today is from bones coffee, which has been a theme on the last couple episodes. And I've had a different flavor each time. Cause we keep buying their sample packs. And this one is gingerbread, uh, part of that, like Christmas in July thing they're doing. And it's not super good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I usually like bitter flavors and Dark coffee's got a nice bitter richness, and then gingerbread on its own, typically, as long as it's not too, it's not too sweet, is really nice and bitter. But the combination of these flavors, it tastes like plastic. It's not my thing. Uh, <laughs> but it's still coffee. Uh, so, Trey, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. You're, uh, you're a fellow hash mapper with me, and uh, we're trying to do more hash mapper content. This is hash map on tap now. And I was hoping you could give a little introduction for yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Sure. So um, I've been a software engineer for about 20 some years. I have worked primarily in kind of the marketing and advertising industry, specifically building things like OLAP, star schemas, or uh, streaming data models that feed, you know, uh, real-time predictive models. Oh, cool. Things things like that that are that are that are kind of big projects with uh, you know lots of moving components, uh, moving you know. Lots and lots and lots of data. So that's that's kind of my primary background. Yeah. Okay. And so you've been in it for a little while. Is there something specifically about the data space that has attracted you or kept you engaged? I tend to jump from one idea to another. And so that's one that's stuck because I'm relatively good at it. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've done stuff all over the place. I've done programming, web development, you know, you name it. I probably worked in it a little bit. So, okay. uh, but yeah, it, I think, I think the, what, what's kept me with it is um, there are lots of really hard problems in the data space and it's um, something that's uh, especially dealing with massive amounts of data and being able to make it to, you know, do something with it. it it's, it's a particularly challenging problem. And so it's something I find unique and interesting. Yeah. And, and I think there's a special, uh, satisfaction to writing a program that didn't exist before using technologies that maybe didn't exist five years ago and just tear through enormous amounts of data that we couldn't conceive of uh, even a decade ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or even build something like that and then go out in the real world to like, you know, a retailer 
go to the checkout line and you've got a coupon that's printing out and you know that you helped make that happen. Oh, that's that's really cool stuff. Yeah, that is really cool. Now, so it sounds yeah. like you've got a wide array or a, a wide array of interests uh, in the technology space. Are there specific things that you you find that you haven't enjoyed so much working on? I'm I'm reasonably talented when it comes to the art side of stuff, but I'm really slow. And so that has ended up being, I've, I mean, I've tried to do like, you know, doing web development with uh, doing like the UI type design and making, you know, making it all look pretty and shiny. Yeah. And they just take way too long. <laughs> yeah. And so it's not that I don't necessarily enjoy it, but the process around doing it is 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 very painful for me. If, if I could have the hours back I've spent trying to get CSS to like line up uh -huh. an object the right way, um, that would be useful because <laughs> it was not worth it. Never has it ever been that worth it to get it to do the exact thing right. So I, I'm definitely a back-end engineer um, at my heart. So uh, amongst these technologies, one of the things that got us first talking was your interest in physical kind of IoT hardware and microcontrollers and electronics. You want to tell us about how you got into that space and maybe some of the things you enjoy doing? Sure. Sure. So, so I started out in college at doing computer engineering, which was kind of split between EE and computer science, uh, electrical engineering, computer science. Okay. And so I ended up touching quite a bit of hardware early on. Um, we, we had like Xilinx, uh, FPGAs, the field programmable gate arrays, the uh, chips where you can actually program the logic on the chip. And some, some of the really early things, this is like the uh, early, the, the late 90s. Okay. And it was hard. It was, I, I found that writing software, I could, I could take an idea, I could think it up, I could type it into the computer, I could see the results of it almost instantly. You know, the, the feedback loop was very, very short, whereas with hardware, it was much longer. And so, so I initially had some interest in it. I thought I could build these cool things. I wanted to do things with it, but I didn't, it, it was just too hard at the time. And so recently I've gotten back into it because there's been a proliferation of things like Arduinos, um, the Espressive ESP 8266s, uh, all these different cheap microcontrollers. You know, Atmel has a bunch, uh, Microchip has some. They, they decrease that, that feedback loop and make it faster and make it easier. It's, it's not nearly as painful as it was before. And so I've gotten kind of back into it because I've always wanted to do these things with it. You know, I've, I've wanted to control my blinds or uh, control the lights in my house or, uh, you know, do presence detection that says when I come home, do all these things. Or, you know, my bathroom, turn on the, turn on the fan when the humidity gets too high. That kind of, those kind of cool ideas that I've had that I love to just be able to have done. Now I can actually have the tools to be able to enable to do them. Man, that's those are really cool use cases, and I think in an environment where these these options are now suddenly ubiquitous, you you have endless options for the different pieces of hardware you can combine or the software you use. I feel like I have a little decision paralysis. So, how do you get ideas for new kind of IoT projects? Do they just strike you in the moment with a problem, or, or is it something that you've always been thinking about these things? How do they come to you? They they've kind of always been in the back of my head. I mean, I've always thought, wouldn't it be cool if and that's usually the great start of a good idea. Okay. It, you know, wouldn't it be cool if when I come home and I open the front door, the lights come on and the, you know, or, 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 you know, all different types of types of things. And then I start thinking about, well, how would I make that happen? You know, what are the different kinds of 
steps that need. So the engineer in me is decomposing the problem and trying to break it into smaller chunks and then trying to say, okay, this tiny chunk here, well, in order to, in order to know that the front door was open, how would I do that? You know, I need, so maybe I need some kind of like switch on the door or a magnetic sensor or something, you know, so thinking about it step by step and then kind of track backing back to, okay, these are the capabilities that I need to have in terms of I want to do this idea. These are the kind of things that I need to implement for it. And then going and making like a, a small test case that says, I'm only going to do this one idea. How do I build this one thing? Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in that space, I think for me, and maybe for a lot of people who are new to this space, this is not like an area I have a lot of expertise in. Um, I, I get stuck with like all the different kinds of hardware. I've heard terms like servo or, or the microcontroller, like you've mentioned, or, or breadboard. Can you explain what these major hard kinds of like hardware are required to start working on a project? Sure. So, so first of all, uh, uh, the kind of basic unit or building block is typically the microcontroller. And so what that is, is that's a small chip that can be programmed. Um, it can read, you know, input from its pins. It can, so it's like a computer, except much, much simpler. Okay. It's almost as if you would take in a single program and put it onto a chip and all it could do was that one program. So it's got one big loop that it's sitting there continuously running and it's saying, you know, looking at looking at its inputs and then then doing something with its output. So those those components and there, there's a bunch of them out there. The, the the biggest one that everyone that is really excited about is kind of the Arduino. Um, it's a simple tiny part that it has, you know, tiny kilobytes of RAM. You know, it, so so what it can do is relatively limited, but it still enables you to kind of make that glue between the hardware of the real world and the software of your program. And so that's kind of the the the, the first entry level part that you want to get into. Okay. Um, is it's, it's understanding, you know, get an Arduino, understand how do I do some, how do I blink an LED? That's usually the thing that everyone does first. Oh, is, that's cool. Yeah, is, is how do I make it blink an LED one second? And then how do I like do like a Morse code pattern? You know, how, so 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 understanding that that you know when I write this code in in the uh, programming environment, what it does on the actual physical device. And what does that programming environment look like? I've always wondered about that. I assume like you're not actually. I mean, are you coding on the Arduino, like plugging a, a keyboard into it, or do you use your laptop? What does that What does that look like? So most of these devices are, you know, we're talking a couple megahertz in terms of speed. They're they're very very rudimentary devices. So they, they, you could never plug a keyboard and a mouse or anything into them. Um, so the way you typically work with them is you have some kind of development environment on your computer. So you've got you know a text editor with you know your code. Uh, it's typically C or C plus um, plus. Although some of the newer microcontrollers can do Python and Java. Oh, cool. Um, so there's yeah. So so they're the it's it's definitely easier to get into them uh, than it has been in the past. Um, when I first started out, the program them you you literally put them in in uh, you, there were various types of special hardware connections like in chip circuit programmers that would let you or in circuit chip programmers that would let you um, program the chip kind of in the circuit. Uh, but you needed a special hardware device that would plug into your serial port or your parallel port, and it was. Um, 
not as simple as, as it is now. So now with, with modern devices, it's usually done uh, over USB with a serial connection. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. And so you usually you do something special to the device, like you'll, you'll set a specific pin to ground, or you, you do something with the hardware to put it into kind of programming mode. And then you, on your computer, you tell it to load the code to the device. Things like the Arduino, where they, what they've done is they basically wrapped all that up where you don't have to worry about anything like that. You just plug it into the USB, and in the Arduino, I, then you have an IDE that's, that's written in Java. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so in their IDE, there's like a big upload button. You just click the upload button, and your code's on the device. Yeah. Okay. So the next step then, how do you interact with that hardware stuff. Does the Arduino come with libraries for the different like SDKs for the different languages that you want to work in? So you can access like Wi-Fi or, or internet of some kind. You can access those pins that you talked about. Yeah, so so the, the, the Arduino software library comes with a bunch of different C++ modules that uh, you can reuse to do various things. The Python, Arduino doesn't support Python, as far as I know, but um, there's another one that I'm using, uh, the Espressive ESP8266 and ESP32, which are more powerful devices, and they support kind of easier environments, uh, higher higher code. Uh, the Arduino doesn't support any kind of Wi-Fi. You'd have to add on hardware to it. It's really like a very, very simple process. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And so I actually don't use it. I've, I use it to just get started okay. just because, you know, everybody's talking about it. I need to check this thing out, figure out what it is. And so the... The kind of barrier to entry to writing code and getting it on the device is what the Arduino made really simple. But what the device can do is really not a lot. Okay. And so that's why I look for other devices. And so the Arduino is, you know, it's a couple dollars for the, the kit. The chip itself is, you know, pennies. Ooh. But the whole development kit is, you know, it's, 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 you know, $10 to $30, I think, for kind of the whole, whole device. There's another device that became popular. It's made by a company called Espressif that uh, is a company out of China. And uh, it got popular in the um, Google Dash button. So if you remember those, the, the buttons where you could buy, and it's not Google, Amazon Dash button. Yeah, you yeah. Could, uh, yeah, you press the button and you've got, you know, a, a big bale of, of toilet paper showing up on your doorstep or macaroni and cheese or whatever it is you want. So the device in that is this microcontroller that is much more powerful than the Arduino. It's a couple hundred megahertz. It's anywhere from like 80 up to, I think you can overclock them up to like 120 megahertz. Yeah. And it has Wi-Fi built in. It has more RAM than the Arduino. So um, it can run um, multiple tasks at once on it, whereas the Arduino just does one, one thing all the time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and so it can run higher end things like uh, Python. So, so I'm using it in some of my projects where I want to be able to say, do something with the environment, like the, the case of, of a monitoring a door. So you've got a magnetic sensor that's attached to a door, and you want to know when that, when that switch opens or closes, right? Because that means the door opens or closes. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's literally looking at the, the signal that comes in on one of the pins of the chip and says, does the signal go lower? Does it go high? And um, then taking that that status of that pin that you're polling, and sending it out to the internet via a message, and so the uh, the expressive chips are powerful enough. They can do things like uh, there's a, a message queue protocol called MQTT yeah. that lets you. It's like Kafka or any or, or, or uh, RabbitMQ or ZeroMQ. It's something like that, um, and it sends messages out. So you can just report out to you know the to the internet to any device that's listening to that message to say, hey, the door opened. Oh, and then you can you could design a bunch of handlers for that, like your your light handler, 
which right. so that and this is something that's been confusing to me. You wouldn't necessarily put that logic on the the microcontroller. You might have like a home server that's listening to control on events. Right. Okay. Right. Right. So your device is really just it's, it's connecting the real world to the digital world in a way of monitoring some kind of external, you know, whether it be a switch or a sensor or a motor or a humidity controller, you know, monitoring those things and then sending that information out to the internet. That's kind of where I draw the boundary in terms of the responsibility for that device. Uh, trying to get it to do more than that is really asking too much and you're going to you're going to make a system that's just going to be too complex. Yeah. Whereas if you just keep it to that that space, then you can add all that other all that other cool stuff of triggering events and timers and and connecting different things together can happen on that kind of central server. Okay, so I think that's where I've gone wrong personally in previous projects. I've worked with uh, either Raspberry Pis or um, mm -hmm. variations on top of that same idea that use just all the Raspberry Pi stuff. And um, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I put all my logic on the Pi uh, to do really everything, reaching out to the internet, handling logic, do failure events, when I, I would have just been so much better off just putting in like a dummy reporter uh, for yeah. different events and then handling all the logic like in the cloud or somewhere else. And we were working on, for HashMap, right? Um, we have done a couple hackathons at different companies across the world. And actually I'm in OKC right now in part, because in 2018, one of the companies in uh, Oklahoma City did a Halloween hack. So I flew out here for that. Uh, we competed. It was really fun. And we worked with um, Raspberry Pis. And those are the only times I really get to really focus on that and like learn a new skill. So I tried to do something outside my wheelhouse. We connected a camera to it. And the idea was to do like image recognition. And uh -huh. I'm, there's no way I'm going to train any sort of neural network like anytime, let alone in a hackathon. So I just used some AWS services. It was really kind of cool, but we're flashing a ton of logic and it took forever to like even just get the OS on. And our sales guy, he's he's there too, of course, because this is a business adventure for us. We want to network. And he picks up the device while it's flashing and unplugs it on accident. <laughs> it was done. We, we couldn't get it to yeah. do any. Have you ever had any of these weird experiences where like, I don't know, static shot came in or you otherwise like just kind of destroyed a device on accident? You know, I've never, not with any of the microcontroller stuff, they're fairly robust and they, um, okay. like I've even had somewhere, uh, you know, a flash failed. Uh, and, and in fact, with some of the Espresso devices, the USB connects to a, a chip that does serial and then serial is how it talks to the, the controller to actually program it. And some of the kind of USB to serial chips are a little on the flaky side. Okay. Uh, some of them are not, not necessarily genuine. There's a comp company that makes them called FTDDI, FTDDI and they, uh, they have, there's a lot of knockoffs. And some of the knockoff chips don't work so well. And so I had one, one of my uh, USB dongles would half program things, you know, every other time, but you just try it again and it would usually work. Would okay. And so I think, I think the microcontroller uh, vendors have, have done a good job of making sure the devices are really robust. These, these parts are sold in bulk for pennies. You can buy them singly for like a dollar. Yeah. So they're really just throwaway parts generally in terms of, uh, you know, so they, they try to make them very, very robust and um, yeah. something that can handle a lot of, you know, they're, it's not something that's going to be really brittle. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to have static discharge typically be a problem with it. I mean, I've, I've, I've destroyed RAM chips before by handling Are you really? them. But yeah, but never, uh, ne ne never a microcontroller. Okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll be a little less careful uh, when I do do projects. I always try to keep my hand on something metal, right? That's something someone told me that, like, keep it on <laughs> iron. You can't build a charge that way. 
Well, what it is is you want to you want to have you and the device be at the same potential. Okay. So, so and so a static discharge is because you have more charge than the thing you're touching, right? Okay. So, so you, you have different levels of charge built up. And so if you are both at the same level of charge, then you then there won't be any kind of different. And so like when um, like if you if it's, everyone talks about CRTs and how dangerous they are, and um, you know you don't want to reach inside, you might shock yourself in the tube. Well, first of all, mo modern later CRTs had a thing called a bleed resistor that removed charge from the tube. But um, even then, when when you discharge it, you don't hook it to the ground on the wall. What you do is you you take the charge that's on the tube itself and discharge it internally to the to the frame of the device. And so you're making the 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 charge of the device all be at the same potential internally. You're taking it out of the tube. Gotcha. Yeah. So so when so so like if you see the wrist strap bracelets that that are like the grounding straps, yeah. they go to a mat, but the mat isn't connected to anything else. So the idea is that you, the thing you're touching, and the mat are all one potential, and that's that's right. the idea. Yeah. It's about those those differences. I, man, um, resistance, voltage, like current, all that stuff. I I went to quality schools that did their <laughs> best to put that in my brain, and I just can't. Um, I I screwed up. Uh, I thought I'd get into car speakers, right? I thought that was cool, and I really liked subwoofers, just huge bass. Um, and I couldn't. I didn't put in zero gauge wire, which is like the thicker wire for my positive. But I did have some laying around. And I just, okay, I'll do it for the negative, whatever, for no reason. And it arced across where you put in the charges. <laughs> and it melted the plastic caps there for the thing. I'm lucky I didn't start a fire in the back of my car with all these different, like, amps I had. And I, I remember at one point, the fuse kept blowing. And I'm like, man, the fuses suck. So I just went and got a much, much higher resistance fuse. Or, or I don't even know, way above the threshold, where the whole point of having a fuse isn't even there. And I'm like, oh, great. I've done a good thing. I had to have a friend come and be like, you shouldn't do that. You need to do something else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all those things are, are, are things you have to think think about when you're doing, especially, you know, you know, electricity is dangerous. But And that's one of the nice things about working with microcontrollers is, I mean, we're talking about devices that run at 5 volts or 3.3 volts. Mm -hmm. We're talking very, very low voltages and low currents. It's, it's you're, you're not going to hurt yourself on these things. And so that's oh, nice. Right. Yeah. I, I always thought like messing with it, like, you know, you get the red and the black, like yeah. three, 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 three volts. Like, man, I'm in trouble here if this goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you'll hurt the device before you hurt yourself. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> knowing me, I probably do both. Um, hey, so you, you've talked a lot about your home automation projects. And I think for a lot of people that's, um, unless they're working in like some super cool industrial industry with microcontrollers, like at the factory level, uh, a lot of people, when they think of IoT or these hardwares, they're thinking about home automation or security. Um, you mentioned a couple projects. Do you want to maybe tell us about like what your process is uh, for these home projects, the some of the tools you use or, or the, the projects you've been most proud of? Sure. So the, the one I did most recently is uh, I, so I, bought, I recently bought a projector. Uh, I replaced my TV with a, a big projector. So it's on the wall. And so I've got these blinds across with windows across basically the entire length of my uh, my apartment. And uh, it makes watching movies kind of hard because it's bright. And so I have to go, and there's seven of them, so I have to go to each one and turn the crank and and, uh, and tilt them downward. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm surely there's a, you know, a thing you can buy for that. And so I went and looked on the Amazon, and there is, and it costs $150. Wow. And for each blind. For each blind. Oh my god. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and and it needs power. 
And it's like, well, I really want it to be bad. I don't want cords hanging down. I don't want to have to figure out a power solution. So maybe I can figure out something better. And so I went and looked online and found, uh, because, you know, I've been, I, I'm definitely in the more beginner stages of my journey back into electronics and, and that kind of space. And so I went and found a kit that you can buy that um, has this ESP32, which is what they're using, which is the more powerful uh, microcontroller. Okay. It has the all the different components that you need. It has a servo motor that is controlled by the microcontroller. And then uh, it has some 3D printed parts that kind of adapt the servo motor to the um, shaft on the inside of the blinds that controls the tilt. So you actually take off the wand. Uh, it, ha- it connects to like a little, it connects to this. Oh, which okay. Is, you know, you know. So that this twists here, which is what you would attach to the rod, and that turns this shaft, and that tilts a rod inside the blinds that controls the tilt of the blinds. So basically, you take that part out, and then you put the servo motor on the end of the the big shaft in the middle of the blinds, and then it controls the tilt of the blinds. Okay. Um, and what does that look like from like a speed? Is it really quick, or does it take forever to kind of? It's actually it, it can be really quick. I said it'd be slow because I, it's no, the servo motor is noisy. Okay. It makes kind of the typical <laughs> sound. Like if you heard a, a printer, a printer has really nice servo motors. This has like a cheap motor, servo mode that you'd find in like a, a remote control car or remote control airplane. Yeah. Those type those type servo motors. Oh. Uh, and in this case, the servo motor is really just a motor where you can control its position uh, with with some ac- kind of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other, th- so these devices don't actually have any kind of real feedback in terms of knowing where they're at. So they don't have any kind of uh, like uh, proprioception of, you know, I'm here. Okay. Uh, it's more of just, I send a pulse and it moves, you know, this number of degrees. Okay. Um, so it, it's, it's relatively dumb. So like, you know, there's a potential that it can over rotate in one direction or the other. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of controlled. And so, but, and, and some of those things are kind of mitigated by the strength of the server motor. It means really it, the, the, the blind is going to win instead of the server motor. Perfect. Uh, yeah, and so so it, it really looks like that. So you've got the microcontroller and the servo motor sitting up in the top of the blinds, and um, then the microcontroller listens for. So I talked earlier about being able to send messages with the MQTT. You can actually listen for them too. Oh. And so you can use it as kind of like an event bus where you send messages back and forth, uh, where you almost subscribe to a topic and you can send messages to that topic from your server. And then the microcontroller receives them and does actions based on them. So I can send a message to this topic to say, hey, set yourself to 50% open and the blinds will go from whatever, wherever they're at to 50%. And then, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, there's the reverse is true too, is they will then send back a message to say, hey, I tilted myself to 50%, which kind of gives you a feedback loop to the to the server. So it can know, yeah, I sent a message to this to this microcontroller to say, hey, set yourself. And then it did. Okay. And then how do you get that input though in there? Are you like getting on your laptop and then sending an MQTT message to the, the broker to say 50% or do you have like a button or like maybe a voice assistant? How are you making that work? So when I first set it up, when I was just trying to get it working, that's exactly what you described. I use, there's a command line tool for sending MQTT messages. Okay. And I just sent a message to the broker, and the broker then sent it to the microcontroller. And that was good for at least testing the setup when I first got it working. When Later on, I looked at a tool called OpenHabian, which is a uh, – it, it can run on Raspberry Pis. I'm running it on just a regular Linux server. 
Um, okay. And it's it's basically a, a Java web application for doing home automation, and it connects to a bunch of different type things. It knows how to talk to MQTT. It knows how to talk to Google uh, the Google Assistant service. Oh, cool. Yeah, and so um, so it acts as kind of the glue between all the different parts. Uh, and it gives you a nice front end. It's got an Android application. So on my phone, I've got an Android app, and I can open it up, and I see all the different things that I've set up in it. And so you can go in, you can add buttons, you can add controls, you can add sliders. So it's got like a UI designer. Yeah. Um, so I added a button for you know open the blinds and close the blinds, and so that shows up on Android. And so I can on my phone click that. But also because it's connected to the Google Assistant, I can tell the Google Assistant, you know, hey Google, open the blinds. Oh, I just triggered it. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Yeah, see, um, yeah, I can I can do that, and then the 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 blinds will all open, and so that's that's kind of cool, and, and and so that software kind of made that pro process possible, and it's not something I had to control to code on the um the, the microcontroller. It's part of kind of breaking the problem into pieces and and making sure that each piece kind of talks to the next piece. Yeah, man, that I I've thought for a while. The, the Google thing, so we, we use the Google Assistant as well, and we control our lights with it, which I didn't set up. I just purchased off-the-shelf products for that. And I've thought sometimes I've gotten so, like, I don't know, lazy or just entitled that I don't even want to talk. I think it would be so cool to have, like, a, I don't know, like a Spider-Man hand symbol. That triggers, <laughs> like that's the Google. Hey, and then I can, like, up or down. or And I'm thinking, man, maybe I, that should be my first project. And I like the blinds. But okay, so something that I'm curious about: How do you charge or, or power these things? Because I assume, maybe wrongly, that it would be you'd run out of battery really quickly if you're physically moving things. It's not just like lights or sending signals. So I don't move them very often. So the so that's part of one of the things that I think when you get into the engineering space, you'll hear a lot is look at the data sheet, look at the data sheet, because every part has a data sheet and the data sheet kind of tells you everything you need to know about it. And so the microcontrollers have data sheets and the data sheets talk about average power draw. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you, you, if you really wanted to know, you'd need to measure it to know how, how you're using the device, how much power it's going to use. Um, but I just looked at the data sheet and said, okay, for the typical usage for this thing is a couple middle, milliamps. It's a tiny amount of power draw. And then I made sure that I purchased a, uh, a battery that would be comparable. So the, the original kit that I bought didn't didn't support batteries. Okay. It wants you to plug it into a wall, wall um, just a regular cell phone charger, and use that for power. Um, so I looked at the device. I, I tried to understand, you know, it's being powered by. So the device itself has a uh, the servo uses five volts. The microcontroller uses three point three volts. And then there's um, on the kind of the circuit board that I bought. They include a, um, a voltage regulator for bringing the voltage from five volts down to three point three for the microcontroller. Oh, if you give it five volts, you'll you'll break the microcontroller. Okay. Um, and so, so I, so I kind of looked at the device and try to understand, you know, what the power requirements were for it, and then use that as to kind of figure out, okay, how do I get a battery that's sized right for this? Part of working with lithium polymer batteries is they're um, they're kind of dangerous, you know. <laughs> I mean, they can explode, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, they can, they can they they can, they can slowly catch fire. They typically don't explode, explode, but they they can certainly smolder and then then you'll know, catch on fire, especially if they're bigger ones. Yeah. And part of that is just due, due to the chemistry of how they're, how they're built. And so 
to prevent that, most lithium polymer batteries have what's called a, a charge controller in front of them. And that's a device that measures how much charge goes in and how much charge comes out and prevents you from kind of under or overcharging lithium polymer battery. Because lipos, when they get too low or they get too high, that's when you end up with those dangerous kind of chemistry situations, oh, yeah, typically, okay. especially when they're overcharged. And so they, 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 the good ones, the, you know, if you look for it, will have that charge controller either built in as a tiny, tiny, you know, like the size of a grain of rice in the battery pack itself, right. You know, next to, you know, behind the, the battery leads yeah. um, or, and, and you'll notice if it has two battery leads coming out, it's probably not, doesn't have the charge controller, but it has m more than one. Then one of those leads is going to be like your know, serial data line for talking to that charge controller and asking, you know, what the, what's the battery charge level, that kind of stuff. Um, so, 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 you know, make sure I had one of those, made sure that I got, you know, from a reputable vendor that had a good lithium battery that, it, and most all of them have that. Um, so you want to, you want to, you know, you're going to pay a little bit more. So I paid like 10 to $15 for a decent sized battery. Uh, I think I got a, a thousand milliamp hour battery. So I figured that would be enough okay. for, for at least for a couple months for the blinds. And then the next thing you need is uh, what's called a boost converter. So the, the, the power that comes out of the battery is, um, it's not at five volts and we need five volts. So we need five, basically relatively consistent five volts. And so yeah. because of how, if you remember, you, know, you talked about, you know, current and uh, resistance and, and voltage, you know, they're all related. And we, most yeah. of us learned about Ohm's law and how there's a ratio between the three things, right? It's kind of like a triangle in terms of this relationship. Um, yeah. So, so the, the neat property is that if you need a higher voltage from something and you have a lower voltage, you can sacrifice current for, for a higher voltage. So you can basically reduce your, the overall current that the device can give you and increase the voltage and vice versa. It's kind of a, a ratio that you can play back and forth with. And yeah. one of the devices that can do that is, is something called a boost converter. The, the reverse of it is called a buck converter where you go from a high voltage down to a lower voltage. And what boost converters are okay. doing, they're, they're uh, switching power supplies that basically take the incoming current and chop it into tiny, tiny little pieces. So, so very, very short pieces. And then um, regulate how quickly those pieces go out to the output through kind of a, 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 a series of a, an inductor and, and a, a capacitor. And so basically using kind of properties of those devices to kind of increase the voltage and then with a feedback loop, maintain that voltage at the level that you're asking for. And so, okay. so, so understanding kind of what that device is, the fact that it exists, and I can use it then to kind of connect a battery with a charge controller to the boost converter to my device, and 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 the kind of whole messy chain will give me five volts at the end. Um, is 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 kind of how I got that working. And so now I have you know the battery with all the that that other hardware kind of up in the blinds and you know the batteries you know it's it's like that size and then yeah. the other hardware is you know it's tiny stuff it's it's part parts you can buy for a couple of dollars you know online and did you do the comparison then of what you what you saved by doing this like compared to sticker price for something out of the box that's worse i mean the, the, the comparison i would I, you know, I wanted the blinds control. And so I actually probably yeah. would have paid the 150 dollars per blind but for me it was more valuable so, so my cost benefit analysis is different than someone else's. For me, the experience okay. is way more valuable than anything else I could, because now I know how to do this kind of stuff. And I, I, yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's very different between watching YouTube videos and reading online and learning about this stuff and then actually doing it in practice. 
Um, yeah. So, so the experience for me was way about, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I say I, I, it was probably in terms of total cost that I spent, you know, maybe 40, 40 to $50 per blind, something okay. like that. Yeah. That's yeah. a big, that's yeah. a big savings. Yeah, so it's a relatively large savings yeah. overall, but, um, the, the you know like i said the the benefit of learning how to do it myself and just having fun doing it i mean it was a fun pro- i'm i'm sitting here yeah. doing nothing because i'm stuck here because of covid-19 so it's it's nice yeah. to have a project you know it it sounds infectious like even with the complexity you make it feel approachable in a way that i didn't think it it was like i thought it was still like i just couldn't figure this out but the way you talk about it it's like yeah just go grab a couple parts piece them together bit bop bop and you've got um, the coolest, it sounds like home theater system you could imagine. Like you have someone over, yeah. oh, hey, Google, uh, close the blinds and then play um, whatever on Chromecast on the TV. You just do it all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what's, what's really cool is they all go at once. It's a broadcast. MQ. They're all listening to the same topic. Oh, so they. And so they all, it's not just like down the line. It's just. All Man. of them. It's kind of, kind of impressive to watch. That sounds awesome. Ah, gosh, yeah. Yeah, I've got to get a video of you uh, doing that sometime. I'd love to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Trey, how is your coffee? Let's have a little quick uh, drink update. Sure. So, my coffee is getting cold. Let me, let me taste. Still really good. Pretty good. Yeah. 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 I, I finish my terrible tasting coffee just out of habit, um, and I'm probably going to stick it through. Um, it's not so bad that I'm going to take all the beans out of the the hopper um, mm-hmm. for the espresso machine. Though I have had I've had coffee that was that bad where I just had to dump it. Like this is this is no good. Um, but I am going to be happier on the next flavor. I think that's true. Well, I have gotten some really good. Uh, there's some small producers, the roasters in Austin that make some really good coffee here in Texas. Oh yeah. And then when I was in Chicago. I got used to Intelligentsia coffee, which they ship, I think, nationwide, and it is, it's really good coffee. <laughs> really? Yeah, they did have you, a. Did a you live in? I, yeah, I Sorry. lived. In, I lived. In, I lived in downtown Chicago for uh, five years. Uh, I. Really? It was one of those like I moved to. I moved to Houston. I bought a house and then needed a job and couldn't find something locally. And someone called me up and said, "Hey, would you come to Chicago?" And so I, I traveled back and forth between the two. I had a house in Galveston on oh, the beach. Yeah. And then I had my apartment in downtown, like in the loop in downtown Chicago. And so that was, that was quite an experience. Got Chicago. So I'm from, I don't, I'm not from the Chicago area, but like the nearest real big city to where I am from in Indiana mm-hmm. was Chicago. So yeah. we, we get to go back every so often, not this year, unfortunately, but next year we're going to plan a really great 4th of July trip. Um, and I've always wondered like, maybe Chicago would be a cool place to live. I work remote and I think I probably could continue to work remote with or without COVID. Uh, so it's something I've considered. Would, would yeah. you, would you go back? Um, I would. It, Chicago, I mean, I think everyone is, is, is well aware that complex is, Chicago is a complex city and it has had yeah. uh, problems for a very, very long time. And so I, I think, you know, that that's definitely something to consider, but as overall in terms of working there, um, especially as uh, someone in the technology space, uh, they have a, growing and I mean they were they were one of the top top runner ups in the pick for Amazon's new headquarters for their HQ2. Oh. Um so and there, there's a reason for that. I mean there's a you know Grubhub is based there, um Groupon is based there. There's a bunch of 
really, really large uh, tech companies that are kind of based in the Chicago area. ThoughtWorks is there. I worked with them for a while. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So, so you know, they've got they've got a long history in that space, and um, there's a lot of opportunity there, uh, and they're growing. So, you know, I certainly, I definitely would go back. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's there, 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 just like living anywhere. There's caveats to living there. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Um, so moving into the last chunk of the, the podcast here, I want to ask you just a couple questions, um, not really related to microcontrollers or IOT hardware, but more just about what it's been like working in this industry. Um, first, do you have any secret weapons that you use regularly that have helped you be kind of successful on tech projects or in business or just in life? Recently, I've really worked on valuing communication because it okay. seems to be the thing that when there's a problem in any kind of big project, it seems to be the main culprit. Yeah. And really being clear and deliberate about your communication, it, it like so time and time and time again, it's like, you know, oh, we got to this spot. It was, and if you go in back and kind of root cause it, it's because somebody didn't tell somebody else something. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and trying to find strategies for, you know, making sure that you're being being open and, and honest and direct and clear. Because like you'll say something and somebody they won't hear it or they won't understand it or they may hear it differently or because they've got a different perspective. And so it it's listening, it's it's making sure you're you're you know, it's all those those habits around that kind of thing. I mean it's it's a soft skill, but it's it's the thing that I found most impactful in the work that I've done in software engineering, because software engineering is, we, we talk about it being all about technology, but it's not, it's yeah. a people thing. We build technology for people, right? We, we yeah. build technology with people. You don't do it in a vacuum. You do it as a group. It's a, it's a, it's a social activity and um, building. So it's like, and it, it's that kind of thing touches everything. Like the push into agile development, iterative software development, all of that is about, shortening that process, making sure we're, we're touching base with each other, make sure we're setting expectations, making sure we're, 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 we're communicating back around. And that it's just, it's so pervasive. I just, I, 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 you know, it, it seems like a silly answer, but that, that is definitely the thing that I have focused on the last, I don't know, 10 years as really trying to push towards myself, making myself better. And then, you know, the people that I work with is, is, is trying to, to improve it in the teams that I work with. Yeah. I think I would agree with that, that, more often than not, we don't have like a a bottleneck around technology in the in the spaces I've worked, the projects I've been on. It's always been the organizational, the communication mm -hmm. skills. And I definitely agree that's something I need to work on a lot uh, as well. We all just try to get a little better at that. Yeah. <laughs> so last question I had for you. Um, is there any advice you wish someone would have given you earlier in your career? I think it's more of valuing two it's i think it's two things it's okay. one one go out there build things make things if you have an idea i so i found that i would fall into the trap of thinking about ideas and then just kind of procrastinating on the idea and not actually doing it and then yeah even worse telling myself oh yeah yeah you know how to do that thing because you've read all about it and you know yeah you don't actually have to do it and so um the the act the activity of actually going out and making something and creating something and contributing it to others and working with others in a group you know contributing to open source uh, building something for your, for yourself at home yeah. those activities are really positive things and they they've definitely helped my my own growth and uh, I feel like 
if I had done that earlier in my career or earlier in my development and uh, I'd be farther along, I think I would, um, um, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be in a different place than I am now. And, and so I think that I wish I had gone back and said, Hey, don't just sit in your own little cave by yourself, actually go out and make something and share it with the world. That, okay. that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. Man, that's really good advice. There's, I mean, there's no substitute for getting your hands dirty sometimes. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Trey, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know we had a ton of stuff I wanted to get to. I think we're going to have to have you back on, man. Sure. That would be, okay. that would be great. Oh, great. So um, for now, though, uh, thank you to the audience for listening. And please subscribe if, uh, if you're a fan of the show, you want to get the latest HashMap tap content. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.